prepaid collect call from an inmate at New York State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. To accept charges, press 1. You may start the conversation now. My name is John J. Lennon, contributor for Esquire magazine and the Marshall Project. I'm locked up for selling drugs and committing murder. Been in prison 18 years so far. Got about 10 more to go. New York State prison system identifies me as DIN number 04A0823. So I'm a writer and I'm a prisoner. And this is a collect call from Sing Sing. Hi, welcome everyone. Let me tell you about Reginald Dwayne Betts. He's an award-winning poet, essayist, and national spokesman for the campaign of youth justice. I'd say he's the most accomplished formerly incarcerated writer and poet in America. He's also a Yale Law graduate. We talked a few months ago before the COVID crisis, right, and before the country entered into an intense reckoning on race. So we talked about Felon, your book of poems, which won an NAACP Image Award, I imagine, among other awards. I reviewed Felon in an essay for the Poetry Foundation, and when it was published, that's tweeted, I'm certain no one has ever written anything about my writing and life that has hit me so hard in the gut. So I talked to Dwayne Betts in December, I believe. So let's listen to some of that first, and then we'll talk a bit today about what's going on right now. Man, you know, one of the wildest things that happened to me, man, is I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a Florida prison, and people don't get it. You know, I mean, you go in a prison as an outsider, you know, and I'm a guest. People introduce you as a writer. People locked up ain't trying to hear that shit for real. In that moment, you got to prove to them that you got something to say that's relevant, right? And so I go into this Florida prison, and it's 120 degrees in this bitch. Ain't no air conditioner. And they get these guys the smallest fucking room in the education department possible, which is the biggest room, but it just feels tiny because there's 70 people in there. And I'm talking. What really humbled me is two things. First, it was this white guy that was like in his 40s, and he was like, man, you know, I read your book, and I really felt like you was telling my story. And every black dude in the room just, like, paused and looked at him. So you were just, like, asked to speak there and uh, just to contextualize it for the, for the listeners? You just, so... This yeah, is, so it's, a, it's probably a dozen creative writing programs in prison. And this was one of those programs where they were doing creative writing on the inside. And they had, you know, some college professors coming in. And so they invited me in, and I, I came in to speak. And I was talking about the memoir, talking about some poems. But you could tell that at first the guys were like, why am I here? And this, this dude was a you know, 40-year-old white guy. And he was saying that, you know, how I was describing my, my experience as a, as a guy coming into the system for the first time, just really connected to him as somebody who came to the system for the first time, despite the fact that he was in his 30s. And what it made me realize, it was a lot of other people in that room, too, who also didn't know how they would respond to me. And they didn't read the book necessarily. But just being in there with him for three hours, like, completely changed what they thought about me. And, and it just sort of made me realize that it's something to be said for finding ways to go back inside of prisons. Because when you go back, you, you are reminded all of the reasons why we need to figure out how to get some more folks out of those systems. Back to your story. It's a story about a 16-year-old black boy who carjacks a white man, does nearly nine years for it in Virginia prisons. He gets out in 2006 and becomes quite the success, having racked up awards, fellowships, today back to the graduate of Yale Law School and the lawyer. I wrote a memoir before I decided to go to law school. Were um, you around getting your MFA when you, when you published in 2009? This was published in Penguin, yeah. by the way, a question for freedom. Yes, yeah, so I got the deal in probably 2007. And so the book was about to be published when I started my MFA. And so what that meant is... By the time I decided to do all of this, like become a lawyer and sort of change my face to the world, everything was already out there. And for me, that was great because I actually never had to deal with the question of would I try to hide? Would I try to erase it? And part of why I don't mind embracing my own failures is because what they allow us to do right now is they allow a few people to sort of disappear into the mainstream. And the more that we accept the few of us disappearing into the mainstream, the easier it becomes 
to like stigmatize everybody else, right? And so a friend of mine, Bruce Riley, he always, every time I say something on Facebook or Twitter, right, he's like, whenever we talk about violence or nonviolence or we talk about forgiveness or not forgiving or we talk about what crimes will people be forgiven for, he's like, you know what, man, I got a body and I have a hard time like moving around in this world because I got a body. And the reason why I think he always reminds people of this is because he does move successfully in the world as an advocate, as somebody who's leading political change in, in New Orleans, like somebody that's well-respected, somebody that went to law school. But he never lets people forget that he has a murder because he recognizes right. that that is the thing that they use against everybody else, right? So he's like, I'm not going right. to let this disappear. And often, like, he breaks into conversations and he's that voice that's making everybody else pause and say, wait a minute, who was I just willing to throw under the bus 10 minutes ago? Do you think that he's able to do that better because he's on the outside? Because I feel like on the inside and like with, with you know, you're saying the brother has, you know, you look for a body just for a listener when, when Dwayne was referring to bodies, talking about a, a murder conviction that, that the guy had killed somebody. But I, I do think the problem, at least for me, is that, and this is what I was trying to explore in the book. You know, I try to write poems about people in situations where some things happen that you wish didn't happen and you're trying to find a way to move beyond it. Because I've been on stage right. with, you know, people with, with parents whose children have gotten murdered brutally who have right. been able to turn a corner and sit down in the same room and, like, talk to the men who committed this crime when they were boys. And the real right. problem is that the system doesn't even know how to encourage that, you know? So let me ask about your turning point, though. I remember, like, for me, in 2008, I remember getting hit up in the yard. I was stabbed six times, punctured, bum, can't breathe. Everyone saw it, but, you know, they were, like, pretending like they didn't see it. And I was struggling to breathe and holding my chest. And I thought about my life in that moment. And I had accomplished, you know, like, Usek, zero. Like, I was just, like, a loser. And, and dying wouldn't have, like, mattered, I felt, like, to anybody. Like, me, like, like, like me dying in that yard in that moment, like, that shit wouldn't have meant nothing. And, and it, but it was a pivotal moment because I didn't die, I lived, and I reflected. I mean, was that sort of, like, I think that was a turn for me. I mean, for you, was the turn, like, when you're locked up in the, in the, in the solitary, you know, cell, like, and you're reading Etheridge Night, and you're just like, man, that could be more, and here's someone that was successful, and he got it, and maybe I can sort of do something. Was that your turn? I think... Well, I think my, my turn was actually a bit earlier just because, like, I mean, I knew I was coming home, and and I didn't know. So it's funny, right? Like, I knew I was coming home, but I didn't know if I would survive prison. And so when I got sentenced to that nine years, my turn was actually getting sentenced to nine years, thinking, hey, this fucking judge said to me, I'm under no illusion that sending you to prison will help. And, and the thing that I respect most about him making that statement is that it – gave me a sense of anger and frustration that forced me to say, you know what? I'm going to make something out of this regardless. Now, I just didn't know what that would be. And then so you fast forward a couple of years later, and this is why I think showing up matters, right? Because when I read this Etheridge Knight poem and I find out that he had been locked up and that he's in a book alongside Langston Hughes and Mary Baraka and Sonia Sanchez and Lucille Clifton, I'm like, wait a minute. This is the only convict in the whole damn book, but he in the book. You know, I love he that. In the book. Yeah, I love it. And it's like, and he talking about yeah. prison shit, though. You know what I mean? He ain't in the book talking about flowers. He talking about things that, like, I mean, for Freckleface Gerald, is about a 16-year-old getting raped in prison. Hmm. And I'm, I'm like, I'm 17, 18, reading that poem, having been 16 in prison. And so I'm thinking, I could do what he's doing. But the truth is, me doing what he was doing had nothing to do with, like, what I imagined success on the outside looked like. It had more to do with, like, what embodying something that mattered on the inside looked like. Mm. When people say they see what we're doing, I think that's why the whole thing about Florida matters to me. Is there was a bunch of guys who was inside who, you know, it took me a minute to send my book to people that I knew who were in prison. And it, and part of it was, like, I know these dudes. Like, y'all are in this book. And so it took me a minute to reconnect with them. But then it was also trepidation on my part. Like, how how is my man going to respond to this thing that I'm doing 
when I'm talking about us, you know, like I'm not stu- I'm not studying people I don't know. I'm literally talking about me and people I know on the yard. And so part of it, part of me feeling, feeling grateful and kind of me feeling joyous and kind of me feeling satisfied was having them look at that work and say you represent it as well. And I think the other part of that is to be able to do it and do it in a space in which we exist in with the rest of the world. Because, you know, I don't have a problem with the prison issues per se, but I definitely have a problem with the prison issues when those places only do prison issues. Like if if the only time you're going to have my voice on your stage or on your page is when you're doing a prison issue, then I definitely have a problem with it. Uh, But I should tell you though, man, my homeboy, like when I sent him the review that you wrote in my book, he was like, yeah, man, I've read dude piece in Washington post. And so what that made me feel like is like, you know, that was the first time that I thought about that Washington Post issue. And I was like, yeah, you was in there with Mitchell Jackson. I know Mitchell. And that made me think, yeah, no. I'm okay with I mean, them doing that. I'm, you know, yeah. so I mean, you know, I'm I mean, not some, okay some with do it. Yeah, some right. I know what you're saying. Like, some could do it. Like, when Washington, the Washington Post does anything and they include you, I mean, I guess you just say thank you. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I'm with that. You know what I'm saying? I just got reached out by a smaller sort of quarterly, and they're like, we're doing a nonviolent prison issue. I was like, how about you do a violent prison issue? And I'll contribute Shit, to it. man, that's, that's I'll, the story I'll, of my life. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you this, because I got you on the phone. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. So my homeboy, my homeboy was like, I don't know, man. I don't know, man. I, I read John Review, and I felt like... He was saying that um, it was something that wasn't hopeful about your book. And and what was interesting to me is I felt like the exact, I didn't feel the exact opposite. I felt like you recognized the tension that always exists, the, the, the idea that prison doesn't disappear. But reading your review made me wish or made me think that I had more to write, right? Because the other thing that I wish I could have said in the book was that um, sometimes I choose to write about the darkest thing. Mm-hmm. Just because people need to understand that even in the darkest thing, the thing that matters is that, like, if you could tell the story, then it ain't end with a homicide, right? Or if you could tell the story, it ain't in in a dark room with somebody, like, just having their head down and quitting on life. But at the same time, I will say that I was a little frustrated reading your review thinking, what? how can I best convey the fact that, like, as hard as it is, it's a space out here for all of us, right? Or at least it's a space out here that all of us could struggle to fit into. And I and I and I felt a little bit disappointed in myself and that like I mean, any book could only do one thing or two things or ten things, but I recognized immediately what the thing that was missing. Yeah. Which was that like what's most powerful for me is like, you know, I mean I got two kids, I've been married for eleven years, and I got people yeah. who love me, like inside and out. And I think some of what's missing like it's a cat from um from New York named Dempsey Hawkins, and he did 35 years, you know, and um I helped represent him on parole, and I remember going to see him up at one of them prisons upstate, and um I was scared to go see him because he had been locked up for so long that I thought he was going to be broken, and I just didn't feel like I could deal with somebody who had got crushed by the system in my own fragile emotional state. And, man, when he came in the visiting room, his eyes was bright. He was healthy. He was sharp. He was just, like, filled with life despite all of the other shit that was happening. And I felt like in my book, Felon, I don't capture that moment. But that moment exists, though. You know what I'm saying? I guess, yeah, there was a part of me that sort of, like, there's so many that salute you, like, in here. And you're such a, a testament to what true redemption looks like. I mean, we, we like to talk about redemption in the abstract, but you are, you know, a real story of redemption. And a lot of men salute you. And, and I guess part of me, it just, it just was like, you know, I mean, reading it, it was like, damn, bro, like, you know, <laughs> I mean, you were talking about some real shit, like, and, and through your poetry and through the abstract, and it was hurt, and it's hurtful, the, the journey of where you are today, but I can, re- but I respect you, you know, saying, like, you know, where you are, you know, right now, and all the gratitude that you do have. You're a humble man, you know, and, and you're a grateful man, and, um, but I guess when I was reading it, and I'm not, you know, a poetry guy, but, I, you know, I was feeling like, like, damn, I'm in here. 
And that's the shit I'm looking forward to. It <laughs> I have issues with intimacy. Like, I have issues. I have issues with all these things that he's talking about. And um, so this vision and this, this fantasy that I have, and, and, you know, it kind of hurt, you know? And, 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 and I hope I didn't express that in a, in a way where I, I can only give my impression of it. And, but it was so visceral where it took me to that place where I could write about something that, I, you know, keep in mind, I've never written about poetry before, and I've never, you know, been moved by any poetry but yours. So... No, I mean, you, know. you read it well. No, you read it well. And, and I'm telling you, like, you know, sometimes you write something, you'd be like, man, do I got anything else to say? <laughs> you know, it's like, as a writer, like, yeah. the, for me, the most daunting thing is the blank page, you know? As a matter of fact, maybe yeah, it's yeah. more daunting than the, maybe what's more frightful than the blank page is, like, past success. Because it's like, shit, that might be it for me. Yeah. So we're both on the cover of 2019 collection of Best American Magazine writing. And I want to quote something that I think is testament to that review and where you're at. And I'm at, you know, Adam Moss, the the former, you know, editor-in-chief of New York Magazine, he said, and in this year, in the intro, he said, in this year of the increasing focus on criminal justice, it is fitting to see not one, but two features written by present or past felons. He said, present or past felons. Then he goes on to intro our features. And I think that's that's where I was coming from in the in the in the book. I'm like, you know, yeah. Like like you he, he didn't call you a felon, bro. Like you, you you're beyond that. You know what I'm saying? Like if you read that and I know you got a copy of it or they sent you a copy. But you've transcended that. You're not even a felon. You're I mean he said past felons. Yeah, and, and you know what's wild? You know what's wild? I'm about to get this. I didn't even know this shit existed. And this is the this is the thing, right? This the beautiful thing about that is you in there and you giving me news that I wasn't aware of. I didn't know that that that, that book existed. I didn't know that we was on the cover of it together. I literally just looked it up and I'm like, oh shit, me, you, Jill Lepore, Leslie Jameson. <laughs> I'm about to start bragging about this shit, you know, and, and I will say like, yeah, you better, you better, because you got me looking, looking at me, you better start bragging. Man, I'm about to make everybody I know buy. I'm, I'm about to start buying copies of this for for, uh, for Christmas for folks. But I do think though, yeah. like, yeah, it, and 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 maybe like the last thing I'll say then is like, you know, I think about the poems and and I've read some of those pieces. When I read them in, in, in neighborhoods that don't usually hear poetry, when I read them in places that don't feel the need to, like, read my life into everything I say, they see their own lives in it. And what I love, you know, you, I, I went to D.C. and I was reading it at a sort of um, adult education program. And the women in there were, like, all connected to it. But the way they connected to it wasn't a sort of sense of hopelessness as much as a frustration but a kind of joy saying, yo, you recognize what it is. And I think for me writing, and for what I read in your piece, I mean, it reflected things about my own life and about my own You work. have one minute left. Like, yeah. I hadn't said it. And having you say it meant that, you know what, if we could say it, we could do something different about all of these things. You know what I mean? And we could build on the intimacy issues and the violence issues and just the lack of freedom issues. And yeah. so I appreciate you doing this, man. Since that conversation, Dwayne and I have become friends. Welcome back, uh, Dwayne, to Collect Call from Sing Sing. Yeah, man, it's a pleasure, man. How's it going? Yeah, good. You know, it's just uh, it's a little blistering hot day. I'm in this cage, but uh, we'll pull it off. So you've been trying to help me with some personal stuff, getting some help from some restorative justice folks to make amends, and that hasn't been easy. You're still in touch with several people from the inside. You're always waiting for a call from somebody on the inside. You know, this help, helping guys with various things, I imagine. Do you feel, like, obligated to the guys that you've left? Because you've been out of prison for years now, but you, you're always answering our calls. Like, Yeah, man, I think, uh, I don't know, duty is real. And, and, and actually one of the wild things about the society that we live in is that we don't talk about ideas and concepts like duty as much as we might. Mm-hmm. And I and I think I got a real duty to people that I know who have served time and who are still serving time. And so, you know, I'm just trying to do my bit to see if we could make some people, um, help some people see freedom. Yeah, yeah, I think we all are. I mean, I was, I was just, I just right before I left myself to run out to, in the yard to get the phone. I was talking to my buddy, and he uh, he's a younger kid. He went away. It, it was a 
a gang murder, long, you know, you know, sort of like an initiation gang murder. And he's been in prison now 13 years. He was young. And I I slid him the Washington Post magazine, the apology letter, because we were talking about our crimes, you know, coming to terms with what we did. And, you know, he he was a a pain, so he was painting the floor of my cell, yes, uh, two days ago. So, you know, he he, he ran back up in the morning before they hit the yard out because he gets to run around the cell block. And we were just having this, like, deep I was trying to review the notes to this conversation, and then, but, you know, we just, like, just jumped into this deep conversation about, you know, remorse and murder, and, and and he was talking to me, you know, just reflecting on on the uh, the article, the Washington Post article, the apology letter, and you know, he, and I said, and he was talking to me about how how he grapples with remorse, and I said, you know, I bet you, I bet you, this is the deepest conversation you had in thirteen years about murder and remorse, and he and he kind of chuckled. He was like, you're right. So, I mean, yeah, but I, yeah, but I mean, I, I I think the wild part about that though is it's not just. Because one way to think about it is to sort of suggest that people on the inside don't have those conversations. And a lot of times that's true. I was talking to my people and it's almost like, you know, you have really deep conversations, really, only with your cell partners in prison. And and part of that is because every other conversation is in groups. And so it's really hard to be vulnerable when you're in a group of people. But when you're in a cell or when you're in a hole and you talk to somebody in the cell beside you, at least my experience was that, those were sort of the deepest conversations. And so it wasn't even even just that, like, we didn't want to have conversations about remorse and regret and the things that we struggle with. But I almost feel like the structure of prison kind of gets in the way of those kind of conversations. Because, I mean, what you just told me was a conversation that happened probably one of the few times that you and this cat got to, like, have some time one-on-one. Yeah, it was. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, and, 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 and my point, though, is that the public, even though on the street we have much more time for that kind of intimacy, the public also doesn't encourage real conversations about remorse and regret. Not in this nation. No. <laughs> and, you know, and I think um, the, the bubble, the double bunk structure, even though I hate double bunks, but there, I have had uh, a lot of intimate, you know, conversations when I, when I was in a double bunk, like in solitary. Like you, you get to tell your whole life story in the first three days of solitary. Like when you're, when you're, <laughs> Like you're like this, and then you do dip into these sort of intimate conversations. But New York, for the most part, has single, uh, sort of single cells. Uh, so, but that was just. Uh, but but I, I digress. Like so, I wanted to just hit some some what's going on right now. Recently, we were talking about writing and publishing, and we both have experience publishing in these big media outlets. We both had stories killed recently about race. It seems like if you don't like write pathos-packed, compassionate stories about race right now, the stories get killed. Like, what's, what's your take without, like, sort of blowing up our own spot with the very sort of, uh, you know, we're, we're both honored to be, like, in a lot of these, <laughs> like, sort of messing our own flow up. But, like, what's your take on, like, you know, the, the narrative of race and, and what they want and that kind of thing? Yeah, I think I think um, part of it, and I should just say, you know, one of the challenges of being a black writer is mm-hmm. every time I write something, it's thought to be about race. And in some ways, arguably it is. But the challenge is that I think for you, maybe as a, as a white writer, you know, you can make the same case. Like like everything. And in fact, everything I write is about prison and about community. And, and, and in some ways, it's just about what it means to be alive in the world today. And that could get narrowed to race. And I think in a way in which everything you write is also about all of those things. But race could get boxed out of it. So then when you write explicitly about race in a certain way. It's like, hold, hold, hold fast, John. Stay in your lane. You're only supposed to talk about these things. And then, you know, if I write explicitly about race in a way that is unexpected, the same thing happens. And and I should just say, you know, my writing about race wasn't it, it was it was more so me trying to write about the ways in which we don't think about men in prison who have committed violent crimes. You know, that's what I was trying to say, right? And 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 why I, I haven't talked to you since then. But the piece that I was telling you about, I wrote an op-ed about a friend of mine named Roger Fentress, and I was arguing that that, you know, he should be free because he was innocent. And I was making this case that we don't care about him or people who have committed violent crimes in prison because we see them as those who have victimized others. And we care so much about people who we can name as victim because we can feel empathy and sympathy for them for being a victim. And so that's why you get a certain type of uh, 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 like community support for some for some people. But the wild thing is like the following week after those two publications didn't run the op-ed, um, he got a conditional pardon from the governor of Virginia. So so I think it's something about the way in which 
you know, we got to keep pushing the pieces out there because the pieces matter. Absolutely. And, and you know, and I'm like, yo, the New York Times. So for the record, was that was that story about him? Did it did it ever see the light of day in a publication? And then no, and then he was born. no. So how, how do you no. think he was? How was he? How did he receive it's, clemency? It was still it was still around right now because what happened is you know he had a lawyer and they've been we've been working on this case since 2016, and what happened is I tried to get my piece out there about him. And in the first iteration, they said this is too much like a personal essay. And so then I cleaned it up and made it a dope op-ed. That still didn't see the light of day. But at the same time, he wrote a letter to somebody, to the governor's attorney in Virginia. And it's like his letter was so powerful that, you know, she reads the letter. Other people read the letter. And a week later, he's walking out of the prison gates. And again, it's just a testament to the power of words. But also, it, it, it says something about what happens if... If certain stories don't hit a light of day, what opportunities for freedom, for for grief, for recompense do we miss out on for restitution? You know, it's like we miss out on so much because in a world in which opportunities to public seem to be endless based on the existence of the Internet and everything. Right. It still seems like so many voices and stories get constrained in a way. Yeah, this idea of violent crime diminishing our humanity and like, you know, we love us some, we love us some redemption stories, but it's like, it almost seems like we love them in the abstract, right? Like we don't love them like when they're really, really like grinding out and happening in real time. Like, you know, you know, coming back from killing a man in cold blood, which is, heck, what I'm trying to do, um, and I think what many of my peers are trying to do that you're speaking about, and what this man just did that that, that clemency is something that a lot of my peers and I can relate to, and I try to hash it out in my writing. You know, sometimes I feel, I always feel like this sort of like, this like, you know, these these people in power, like questioning, like, um, my ethos or my character, like, ah, you're just trying to do this for, like, dot, 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 for what? What am I trying to do it's this not, for? What you, you, no. think, you think I'm you think I'm dying to go back and tote guns and hurt people and sell drugs? Like for what? No, am it's I doing almost this? it's almost like and you and, and look, I, I didn't murder anybody, right? And so I, it's interesting for me because when I did commit the carjacking, they looked at me as if I had committed the most heinous crime, and that's how they talked about it. And when I was doing my bid, that's how they thought about it and talked about it. But when I came home, since I don't have a murder and I don't have a rape, I find right. people dim, diminishing the amount of violence that I've inflicted on somebody else. So like, cause it's almost as if even for them to love me, they have to diminish the crime. They, they can't oh, say, yeah. you know, yeah, it, 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 it can't be that like you committed one of the most, you know, like they can't say that what you did was heinous, but I love you. It, and frequently, right? yeah. yeah, frequently sort of like, it's sort of like, why would you go to prison for nine years just for taking a car? And you know, and when it happened, I didn't, and they weren't saying I just stole a car. They were saying, yeah, he need to go away forever for putting a pistol in that man's face and taking everything he owned. That white so man's a, face. Yeah, well, that white man's face, definitely. So, and, and, and because saying that white man's face was like a, a way to make us even more egregious. But to your point, though, it's almost as if the, the, the case we're making is against the need for, like, self-conflagration. It's almost like, you know, we would believe you if soon as you finish writing a piece, you set yourself on fire. You know, the, the the bar is so high to figure out what makes us believe the pain that drips from the pen. That and, and I, you know, I commend you and everybody else in that joint for pushing against that because I think um what we all would reform anyway and what these conversations is is finding the language. Tamir Rice while driving in the backseat of my car, my own son, still not yet Tamir's age, already having heard me warn him against playing with toy pistols, though my rhetoric is always about what I don't like, not what I fear, because sometimes I think of Tamir and shed tears, the weekend or another insignificance, all another way to avoid saying what should be said. The Second Amendment is a ruthless one. The pomp and constitutional circumstance that says my arms should be heavy with the weight of a pistol and forced to confront death like this. A child, a hidden toy gun, an officer that fires before his heart beats twice. 
my two young sons playing in the back seat while the video of Tamir dying plays in my head. And for everything I do know, the thing I don't say is that this should not be the brick and mortar of America. The moment when a black father drives his black sons to school and the thing in the air is the death of a black boy that the father cannot mention. Because to mention the death is to invite discussion of taboo. If you touch my son, the crimson that touches the concrete must belong at some point to you. The police officer who justifies the echo of the fire pistol. Taboo. The thing that says that justice is the killer's body mangled and disrupted by bullets because his mind would not accept the narrative of my child's dignity, of his life, of his right to breathe, of his humanity, and the crystalline brilliance you saw when your boys first breathed. The narrative must invite more than the children bleed on crisp fall days, and this is why I hate it all. The people around me, the black people who marched, the white people who cheered, the other brown people, Latinos and Asians, and all the colors of humanity that we erase in this American dance around death. As we are not permitted to articulate the reasons we might yearn to see a man die. There is so much that has to disappear from my mind not to abandon sanity. Tamir, for instance, everything about him, even as his face really and truly reminds me of my own. And the last photo I took before heading off to a cell disappears and all I have stomach for is blood. And there is a part of me that wishes that it would go away. The memories and that I could abandon all talk of making it right and justice. But my mind is no seed and sanity is no elixir. And I am bound to be haunted by the strength that left to me as father, mother, kinfolk, resist the temptation that turns everything they see into a grave and make home a series of cells that so many of my brothers already call their tomb. That was one of the uh, poems I quoted in the review. And there are like, I mean, that was like a visceral uh, experience, like just reading that poem. But there are a lot of like conflated conversations that happen when an innocent black man or child gets killed by the police. I mean... I have even like, I, I mean, I've I've conflated the two, even in the review of your of your poetry, and I think like that's what you were referring to when we initially talked, where some with some like some of your colleagues were like, "Damn, I don't know, man." He kind of like, he kind of went, he went, he went, uh, you know, he, he came at you like a little bit, and I think one of the lines that they were talking about about was like, I quoted the Tamir Rice poem, and then I wrote, "That's while I'm still a kid." did stick a gun in a white, white man's face and in some ways further the stereotype that makes cops uneasy or violent or deadly toward, toward young black men in America. I, I like Now knowing, like, it's just like, I almost read that back and feel, and feel bad that I wrote it because um, I think these are separate conversations. Um, I mean, first of all, I don't think white fathers after Tamir Rice got killed are obsessing while driving their own kids to school and that conversation has to be different from hey you know uh black men uh commit violent crime at disproportionate rates uh than whites i mean are these separate conversations can you unpack that i think we were touching yeah i think i mean i i think they are separate conversations and yet you know i mean so one thing is i think you i imagine there's a real need to be able to have a conversation without believing that to say one thing that's that's absolutely true and that you know i committed a crime that absolutely did further a negative stereotype about black folks right i gave fuel to a certain kind of conversation that has like led to violence right so i think that's true and i think that i need to be able to say that without imagining that my need to say that truth somehow diminishes all of the other things that are also true. And, you know, those other things just absolutely include the idea that, which is scary, that a white dude wouldn't have been driving down the street having that same conversation in his head that I was having. And so as much as we say that this is not about race, we have to recognize that it is. As soon, like anybody, any white father or mother or aunt or uncle, if they don't think about Tamir and think it could have been that kid, if they don't think about Eric Garner and think it could have been that loved one, then we really do have to confront the way in which race 
disrupts any kind of legitimate conversation that we might we we might want and need to have. But I, I didn't feel that way about the the review though. You know, because I felt like the review was hard because the review the review also reflected your thinking and action. It also reflected the way that you were grappling with, you know, some serious stuff. And it's not supposed to be like easy or convenient. And so I don't know. I, 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 part of me feels like, um, <laughs> you know, some people just kind of want things to be easy or convenient. And when it's not, it's a sort of disappointment. Right. I didn't feel that way. I, I just think it's not supposed to be easy or convenient. And and the piece you wrote wasn't easy or convenient. And, and I needed to be challenging in some of the ways that it was. So. I think well, I appreciate that. I, I think you know. Uh, I mean, I would, I would say, good writing can't be easy or anything. It has to have a profound conflict, whether it's poetry, essay writing, or even journalism. And yeah, I want to quote, like, quote, uh, uh, Tanahisi quotes, and he said, he says, uh, "Black on black crime is to shoot a man and then shame him for bleeding." And I think you just said something like that. He, he continues, it vanishes the men who engineered the covenants, who fixed the loans, who planned the projects, who built ah, and sold shit. red ink in the barrel. I mean, he's, ah. he's like spitting fire right there, but it's, ah. it's, it's, it's so, yeah, your take on that. Yeah, but I think that he's talking about two different things, though, right? Because even though I agree with he's saying that the rhetoric of black on black crime as an excuse not to discuss these other systemic issues is to do all of those things. But that doesn't mean that we don't actually have to engage with the challenges that come up in our community. I mean, you know, I see it differently mainly because I committed a crime and all of my boys did. And I, and I grew right. up and in a did, place where- he did it, and he didn't. So you have like this sort of agency and accountability uh, that you have to come to terms with that perhaps he doesn't. Oh, he definitely doesn't. I mean, he, he right. never did, did what we did. I mean, you never did what I did and vice versa, but I'm talking about criminality. Right. I think, and so I think it's, I, I mean, I think that's why it's so hard to thread the needle and I have right. both conversations at once. Because the thing is, let me say it this way. You get excommunicated from your community. So it's no discussion about white on white crime because the, it's like you have gotten excommunicated. And so vis-a-vis the thing that you've done has forced and allowed white people not to see you as part of the, yeah, like, the white politics. I'm glad, I'm glad you, I'm glad you said, I don't feel like those are my like, I don't, I don't feel like white people are my, when they, when they look at me in prison, they look at me and scoff at me, I feel, because I squandered. When the judge sent me away, and she looked at me, and I felt it oozing from her pores, like, look at you. Look at you. You you, you squandered that. This is where you wanted to go? I'm going to send you there now. And she gave and, me the business. And the difference, white people are disgusted with me. Like, they don't and the my allies. Right, and the difference is that for black folks, the, the disproportionate rates that we get incarcerated, the systematic racism that, that black folks have dealt with. Like, even when I committed my crime, I was still a part of the black body politic. And so it's a way in which to try to explain my existence within it and the conditions that we confront. We have had to do some of the things that Coates is doing. But 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 I think in your piece, what you were asking. And again, I, I, I don't think that the the, the violence that the, the death of Tamir Rice is connected to the crimes I committed. But what you were saying is that the way in which society is so quick to view Tamir Rice in relationship to the way in which they view me because of the things I did, what does that mean? Am I furthering a stereotype? And the only reason why you ask that question, I think, is because what underlies it is this reality that when I commit my crime, I don't get excommunicated from the Black body politic. And so for me, I ask myself the same question because it becomes a challenge to say, you know, it's not just that we got to get incarceration rates down. It's that my homeboy has to come home and not sell dope. Right. And, and, and I need him to come home and be like, I want him to be a mentor to my children. Right. Right. And I right. think that, it, it, you know, and, and, and maybe and that's the same conversation that happens within the white community in terms of like family and people that they intimate with. But I just think the political conversation around mass incarceration is so centers so much around blackness that, that that political conversation around mass incarceration necessitates that I have that other part of the conversation too. You know, even if like right. some people who talk about, um, you know, 
the disproportionate race and incarceration and racism and the United States systematic um, oppression of black folks and try to try to fit incarceration within that narrative, which to a degree it fits, but to a degree it doesn't. And, it, and it, Right. The degree that it doesn't is there's more white people in prison than black people. Do you think it's sometimes we're shooting ourselves in the foot when we always make the, the mass incarceration trope about race when you hear like mass incarceration it's the it's the disproportionate uh, which is true and it's horrible and it's racist i mean one i, I think to, to actually make the true advance and the true pushes because you know it's, it's certain things in your story that that we have to confront that we can't avoid because of issues around race so i wasn't really thinking specifically about the victim in your crime although that's absolutely true i sort of meant this whole idea that, you know, we think about incarceration and we only think about black folks. And so we okay. got to confront the idea that you got so many white folks in prison. And then also, I think when, when when we confront that, then we create space. And as you go through your own process, like you create space in a narrative for restitution and for just coming to grips with what this means for you, that then could become a model for for others. Right. And it works the same way. Like, you know, it's crazy though, right? Because think about this. I haven't had to really grapple with that in my life. Like, I've, I've sought to try to do it through my writing, but right. the actuality is that, but like, but in terms of, but you actually have to do it. Like, I need to figure out a way to talk to these folks because I think that's the added burden of a homicide, right? And and it works on us in a way that, that makes you, anybody with a homicide makes them more of a, on a vanguard for thinking about, you know, a, a kind of sophisticated take on what does it mean to 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 have regret, to have remorse, and to communicate that to the public. Because ultimately, the reason why we don't care about people on the inside is because as a country, we haven't really developed those muscles, those those muscles that that accept um, those forgiveness muscles for for like to to really simplify it. Yeah, I mean, we're we're a pretty unforgiving nation. Um, you know, even. You know, it's very, it's complicated with, you know, this, I know you, you're doing a lot of great work, uh, and a lot of your colleagues, we, we talked about this restorative justice thing. I mean, just think about, like, you know what I had to go through. Like, so, so I'm, I, I'm in this writing game, you know, from prison. I've, I've been fortunate to build this career. And you kind of like ignorance of the law. I mean, I'm talking to a, to a law man. I mean, you're a Yale man. You know what I mean? So, like, like so ignorance of the law is no exception to, like, you know, what do they say? Like, it's no defense, right? So, right. like, I had to, like, read up on the Son of Sam laws, and, you know, I had to, like, realize that, okay, so if I, so it, the exception to the Son of Sam laws earned income, and a lot of what I do is journalism, right? So I could earn this income. It doesn't say, it doesn't, it, it expects you as a prisoner that you won't earn any income, so it's basically funds of a convicted person, and probably applicable to those who get out of prison uh, that uh, if you come in, you become subject to, uh, you know, the sort of same law is just wide reaching, but it, but the exception is earned income. So I could earn income for my journalism, but the couple of pieces that I wrote, like, for example, the Washington Post magazine, which you know was you know, the apology letter. I was talking primarily about the crime I committed, killing Alex, and I, had a, I, couldn't, I couldn't keep that. So I reached out to you and to try to push that, like, but, but I'm like, you know, with, with good advice, you know, it was, it it was thought to be insulting, like to, 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 to. Well, but part of it though, and but part of that also is like, you know, you in a, you in a sort of peculiar position in that, you know, most folks don't have the ability to, to, to make a living engaging with the things they did. And also it's like weird. It's like, where does that line cease? Should I be right. victim of the son of right. Sam? Should I fall? Should I have fallen under those laws um, mm-hmm. when I wrote my book? You know, so it's yeah. like it's like it's like interesting. It's like where does the line end? But but the main thing, though, I think, and and this is this is the, how ignorance of the law hurts all of us, right? Because the law is meant in some way to to um to do certain things that really has nothing to do with your relationship with those folks. And and what's interesting is like. The real thing, what you would expect is, if if the you would expect the communication that made to, to have been possible, that allowed you to pass that bread along or make the offer, without it seeming insulting. 
But we actually don't have... That's my point. Right. That that was my point. Going through everything that we went through, I mean, thank God that I had a friend like you that was walking me through that. And it still was difficult. I mean, you're super plugged in out there. Like, 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 you, you know a lot of people. Like, so, and even me... And so do I. But and even me uh, and us together, we were just like head scratching for a moment. Like shit. Well, well, what do we do from here? Like, and then and then we go ask. Like, there's in other words, there's no function on restorative justice. Like, what to do? Although you know, it, you hit me. You just hit me with something though that I hadn't thought about. Right. Right. And in a in a direction that we didn't go. You know, they just had a, a report on the Brooklyn DA's office and everybody that they exonerated. Uh-huh. And, and, and the Brooklyn DA's office has, like, been pretty progressive as of late, and they've been doing that thing. And I think that the one direction I never considered going, and part of it is because, you know, my posture towards the state and towards prosecutors is still, like, you know, they are engines of the system. Yeah. So back to sort of discerning what my writing you know, when I step too far over talking about the crime I committed, I'll push the whole bread. I'll push the money for the 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 piece that I got. You know, but right. if, if but when I'm not talking about Alex, you know, I, I may put a line in there, be like, you know, just because you know, oftentimes my work is appearing in magazines, and it'll be like, you know, the reader's going to be a little bit, you know, it's, it'll little, be a little jarring, like when they're like, when you all of a sudden you're in a prison yard, and he's talking about like, you know, he's like, wait a second, this 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 guy's in prison that he's writing for. Like, I don't, I don't get it. So you got to like, let them know, like, oh, by the way, I've been in prison for this amount of years. You know, I killed a man back in Brooklyn and, you know, not to sound glib about it, but you just give them the information and then you get back to the narrative. And I just don't think, um, I just don't think that that, that necessitates, uh, giving up the fees to that because I'm going to be doing this when I get out. And I'll open no, but I do think and, I do think it's a um I do think it's an interesting question though. It's like you know you had those cultures where it's like um and, and I want to separate this right. So I think about my own joint. I yeah. wondered like um because you yeah, wrote I mean, poems about walking in that parking lot in the abstract. I kind of like called you on that in the review. Like I was like, wow, he he goes there like with that like with with yeah. So it's, I, I, I yeah, go ahead. I want to hear you on that. So yeah. So the so the question becomes like, what do I owe, and then how do I pay? that thing that I owe is the one version of it is, um, I mean, one version of it is I'm paying by doing the right and, and trying to do the work. Right. I think, but, but another version of it might be, uh, might be that when I recognize the full bandwidth of kind of harm I might've caused mm-hmm. that what I owe is to be a part of repairing it and that the words aren't enough. And, and so maybe, and I, I, you know, and it's, we don't have those conversations. So even for me, I would have to think through it and say, well, what is it? What does it mean? You know, um, because like, and then, and then you could keep, you could keep spinning it down no matter what the sort of particular offense is. What we, what we have gotten right now is a society that is not really concerned with, with asking what it is that you owe. We we have gotten um, to the point where we are most concerned with what is a, a worthy punishment. And in fact, we don't even say what is a worthy punishment or what is a fair punishment. We just say, you know, if we could equate what it is you owe by the punishment that you give, then that's sufficient. But what's really hard about that is you or me or anybody else's inside is, you know, we frequently thinking about what we owe as being a product of more than just years. Yeah, and but I even think that I would even push back with the like what we owe in years, like you know, even when they think about it, because justice is arbitrary. Before I took the plea, Alex's life was worth fifteen years uh, plea bargain on my part. Uh, now I push, I, I push the envelope and compounded my guilt. I, I put that family through a lot during those trials trying to get away with murder, so I'm not dismissing that, but but it compounds a hundred percent. I got nearly thirty years to life now, like so. Like a lot of that is like arbitrary, like right, like you still. Oh yeah, 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 no doubt, no doubt. But I think it, what it is though is it's still saying to all of us, it's no metric for what you owe that the society and the community and we should be thinking about outside of the context and years, which is wild because I think our writing and your work is saying, well, I'm trying to think about it outside yeah. of that context, but it's no. Yeah. But you got, I mean, it's like you're you're inventing. I mean, we're constantly inventing the world, and that's why. You know, common common justice, and that's why um, Sujata Beliga, and that's why just the whole restorative justice movement across the country. You have some really bright and capable and dedicated people that's trying to figure out the the question about restoration and forgiveness um, in a way that could both like center guilt and center healing. 
it's interesting. A big shout out to Daniel Sered, you know, Common Justice, doing a lot of restorative justice work in the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. But she was pushed back when she wanted to do the work with people that committed murder. So it's everything but murder, right? You know, but isn't that as we discussed in this conversation, isn't if aren't the cases like mine? Are, so aren't those the most with the, with the highest stakes, right? Um, that we could really learn from our own humanity, and, and then it's very sensitive, right? Because you know you don't want to sort of uh, press, you know, victims and pull them or uh, survivors, I should say. Uh, it's also like a like a landmine of language, right? That, that that I don't even know about, you know, living in a cell. Uh, I try to, but like, you know, what do we, you know, this, it's it's so sensitive, restorative justice. I mean, it's strange. You got this thing that's really needed, and it's really important for us to figure out how to engage with it. But we also live in a world in which you you were saying how it's important to to think about, you know, like murders, and oh, right. how we don't. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I I agree, man. But again. I, I think that this is how, in some ways, um, I got to go back and re-examine Malcolm X and re-examine Manchild in the Promised Land and re-examine the whole body of a prison memoir to ask if and to what degree those works were also engaging in these questions. Because, you right. know, a lot of times the redemption narrative doesn't actually require you to confront the violence that you inflicted on somebody else in a robust way. And when we when we when people talk about my story, like I'm not sure if in a question of freedom, I gave them that. And so when you when you think about um, so, you know, if you think about the parking lot poem, if you think about felon, period, I think I'm trying to move towards um, really grappling with the kind of the kind of violence that leads to incarceration, the kind of violence that leads to the, the larger part of incarceration um, than like drug addiction, drug use and things like that. And, and but I think I don't know. I'm trying to figure out the ways in which my own work right now moves beyond just being descriptive. And my next big piece of nonfiction has to do that. It has to be more than just being descriptive. Well, talk about, talk a bit about uh, some of the great work that you're doing, like some of the projects that you're doing right now. You're, you're, there's a book project where you're trying to put together some of the best writings for for guys that are incarcerated. Uh, some of the best sort of like you just rang off uh, some some great books. But can you tell us a little bit about that pro- project and the and the other project that you're doing with uh, Titus Kafar? I mean, I'm sure I'm. Yeah, yeah, you did it. So I got I got a couple, man. And one, the one, the million book project, I think is the biggest thing I'm doing right now. And it's actually the biggest project that I, I've ever spearheaded. Uh, first is, you know, nationwide. So the idea is to cultivate, I call them literary time capsules. And part of it is because back in the day when we would put time capsules in the sand, the idea is that we would be telling the future, the ways in which we live. But it was meant to get them information that they needed to, to fully understand us. Well, I'm building literary time capsules because I think that you do a bid. It's information that you need to fully understand who you are. And you need it while you're doing a bid, not later. And so I'm curating this collection of 500 books that have run the gamut. You know what I mean? I was talking, I got, I got sons. I got an eight-year-old, 12-year-old. I read them books. I got friends who've been locked up since 1996 when I got locked up. And they have children. And we were never really on prisons that had young adult books for them to read their kids. We were never really on prisons that had children's books for them to read their kids. And the thing is, if you want to have a like a robust presence in your child's life, and also to put pressure on the system to think about the way that it's structured and organized to facilitate certain kind of conduct and contact and not to, right? So you might have to have more phones so that men could get on the phone two or three times a week and read to their children so that women could get on the phone and do the same thing. But anyway, I'm trying to. How are you going to you gonna get them to the to the brothers? Because uh, I, I think it's so true that you know it, it's the, the real learning is in the cell. But in terms of access, I mean, are you making deals with the general library? How is this going down? This collection of all these prisons across this, so like logistically, yeah, how man, you I got to I, I got to invent something that's never been invented before. So that means I got to convince my team, myself, and society that that people who run Department of Corrections need to be seen as partners in this one right. and that you know and that um and that it's a, it's a net gain to make this work more available and then of course you got a lot of prisons that have struggling libraries but even prisons that have great libraries frequently you're still trying to figure out a way to get people to access the library and use it more and, and so get the word in the yard right like get the yo well, this cat, like, he's like, gonna this be on the yard though so, I, so i'm doing a couple things so first 
I'm trying to I'm trying to negotiate and facilitate it in ways where I'm thinking about what the space on on the, on a building looks like, what the space on a unit looks like, so that I can start asking different kind of questions. Like, well, well, hold up, maybe we should actually have this on a unit, right? And you just got this 500 book set on a unit, right? And then that set creates a conversation that starts on a unit, moves out to the yard, moves to the library, and so one person might have a thousand people there, and it might be ten buildings, and maybe you put one one set in a library, and then you put a set on three or four different buildings. For right. whatever whatever rationalization that um, right. that I come up with with the warden and the other people that's involved, but then the right. other thing I'm doing is I'm actually going to be facilitating writers coming into those spaces and giving talks. You know, you go to a university, you got hundreds of people that come in every year giving talks. Mm-hmm. You could be in the same state yeah. and and locked up and have zero people come through. And you know, you, know, you can't you be what you can't see. So it's like, how do you? Well, it's, it's difficult to be what you can't see, and so I'm trying to make the um, the presence on the outside uh, more significantly there on the inside. Yeah, uh, you know, a colleague of mine, this guy uh, Lawrence Bartley, he got out. I don't know if you know him. He was here with me in Sing Sing, and now he's uh, he works at the Marshall Project. Uh, right before he got released, I was talking to him about publishing a piece about his crime, and you know, he did 27 years. He got locked up when he was 16 for having a shootout in a movie theater, um, and uh, a young man lost his life. And he uh, today, you know, Lawrence for 27 years, he works for the Marshall Project, and he created, uh, you know, the Marshall. Project uh, is a nonprofit news organization for which I write, uh, and you know, but people in prison can't access articles from the Marshall Project, right? So we're talking about right. having the same conversation here, right? We don't we don't get online pieces. We recently, even those who recently got on these tablets, where we could sort of glide our fingers, which is fascinating itself. We could do a whole episode on that. Um, uh, but we, you know, we get AP news, which is you know, AP is good, but it's not like the kind of it's not like great writing. It's kind of like you know, structured, you know, uh, you know, just reported. You know, I'm not shooting it. Right. <laughs> but it's not like a great feature story or something like that. But um, but all I'm saying uh, is, I mean, but what Lawrence did was Lawrence created a uh, a Life Inside magazine where he negotiated with, I think, you know, close. Uh, I mean, the majority of the states in in, in America. So. Um, he already has these existing relationships, so I, I should reach out to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. He, he, yeah, he's my, you know, and he's he's a colleague of mine, and we did time together, and he, he he's already got the end. You know, Marshall Project got their weight up, so uh, it's um, it, and they love you over there. Like whenever I drop uh, that's his name, you know, everyone's eyes lights up. So, um, so yeah, that that could be. It. But tell but us, see, about even the, even that though, right there, right, even that, like I didn't know that. And, and a lot of times we think about the the, the way things move back and forth, and people right. think, you know, I'm just bringing I'm bringing you bread, right? It's like, nah. By by me coming into prisons, I get fed too. And so you right. know, it's oh, one, right. you, yeah, yeah, networking, yeah. Right. You, like, did, you didn't I, know you didn't know you didn't know people's uh, eyebrows uh, raised when I mentioned your name, or you didn't know about Lawrence. No, I didn't know about I didn't know about Lawrence's project. And so okay. now I'm like, oh, wait a minute. He and it might be a way that I could be an asset to him, but I know that he could definitely help me. And it's you who informed me about him. I recognize yeah. his name though, because I get the Marshall Project um, emails right. every day, right. so I've recognized his name. And I just didn't. M- maybe I hadn't peeped his stories out closely. Maybe I'm just seeing his name, you know, every day because it's coming through. But uh, but now I'm gonna pay more close attention and reach out to him. Yeah, no, he's a good brother. He's doing a lot of great work out there. And there's always like. Um... You know, he, you know, he had a fight for his parole because they denied him. And he's a guy that got a master's degree in prison. And he did, he did a lot of great uh, work while in prison service. You know, and it's so interesting because it was like the parole board for a moment thought that you wouldn't be that you needed to stay in prison for another two years. I mean, they they argued that they denied him. He had to like went on his appeal, his parole board. Like, so it's so interesting what he's been able to accomplish in two years, you know. And I'll be honest, there's a little bit of you know, there's always a little bit of envy when you see a boy get out and he's just you know, you you, you you're happy for him, and then at the same time, it's just like you know, you're just in your cell shaking your head like, oh man. With, you know, like, I can't it's wait always, to get out there. Like, yeah, because I mean, it's always that question of, um, it's always that question, man, of, uh, like, I, I, so I got four friends that was at one prison. And at this point, 
So a year ago, all four of them was at this prison in Virginia that I did time at. Right. And and to date, three of them have gotten out, two on parole, and one got a party. Mm. And and you know the dude that's left, he's like, but these are like decade long relationships that he had. Mm-hmm. And and I you know it's it's like a, I mean we don't we don't actually have a language I think to talk about how devastating going time is because. Just to jump in, just to jump in, the time gets the hardest for me, uh, Dwayne, when and for and for those around me, because this is not just about me. This is about this. This podcast is about getting the story. I mean, there's there's men in Sing Sing that have master's degrees that have a less than less than one percent recidivism rate. I'm just saying the numbers. We're not even talking about the character, the individual characters, and I know about both. Uh, the numbers and the character, um, that these guys just ain't coming back. So you have to ask yourself, you know, and, and I think you would just get about to scratch it. Like, what, what is, first of all, what, what is the avenue we have to take a second look at an individual? And and then and then it's only clemency, right? It's only clemency. You can't earn any good time on a 25 to life in New York State. You know, so a part of me having sort of, you know, had this success and built this career and a lot of my friends also, too, like having have had those degrees and are doing a lot of the great work on the inside. It's like the, the time becomes so much harder when you're ready to go and you're unable to leave. It almost gets me emotional just, you know, talking about it. Yeah. But I, and I think, though, I mean, I think in some ways we uh touching on different aspects of the same conversation. The essay that I'm I've been struggling to write about working as a federal law clerk, you know, if I if I boiled it down to one sentence, the essay is really about when is like how much time is enough. Mm. And and I got a week to to finish it. But you know, my engagement with the law, me working for a federal judge, the thing that I kept coming back to, because while I'm working there, I had a cousin that just came home off of a 15-year bit. Um, me working there, I had friends that were locked up who trying to figure out parole. I'm helping them with their parole hearings. Like, all of this stuff was going on at the same time. And so, you know, my work life was consumed with a whole wide range of legal questions. But then the criminal case would come up, and it hit me doubly hard because then you would have guys on the inside that were really asking the same question. How much time is enough? And what I knew... You just said that you know the statistics and you know the character. Well, when I would look at those cases, what it always struck me is those cases didn't present the statistics, the character, or, or, or not even necessarily the most relevant features of the case. And so it was almost like you asking this question of how much time is enough, but the person that you're asking it to couldn't have any of the data that's required to actually consider it. You know, we're trying to find out if you are presenting you know, new evidence. And that has nothing to do with whether or not, um, you know, it's enough time has passed. And so the the heartbreaking thing is you could be in a position where you're in prison and you're just saying, man, I'm ready to go home now. Right. But, but the only way you could communicate that to the court is if you're lucky enough to have some, some newly existing evidence that, that, even, that but might. even that is a fine line, though. Like, I, I just had this conversation with my friend that why he doesn't come to terms with his crime is because he has his habeas corpus in, 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 in the federal court. Right. I said, I said, bro, you a state prisoner. I was like, I was like, they're not, they're not giving you rhythm in the state courts. I was like, let's have this conversation and let's take this coming to terms class that Osborne is, is you know, he, he look, he's got 18 years. He doesn't have a parole board. You know, his he, he doesn't need to come to terms. But he, we were having a real conversation. I'm talking about the brother that we started this conversation with, I was having a uh, conversation with in front of myself. But the, the courts, what I'm trying to say is that his, his claim in the courts um, is, is, is contingent on his, his innocence claim, you know, his actual innocence. So in a way, the courts sort of bob down the work that, the sort of work that you need to do on yourself in terms of accountability, because if, what I'm trying to say, if there was another route where, where we could sort of unpack, you know, our our crimes and come to terms with who we are instead of this sort of relentless claim that we're innocent when we're not and try oh. to play with these people in the court, man, then, you know, more, you know, more people would, would have better, you know, have, have better a chance of, of coming to terms with their crime and, and really address who they are as men and women. Right. No, no, that's, that's, I mean, that's my exact point. It's like, 
you said it into the court, whether you talk about the fact that you're innocent or whether it was ineffective assistance of counsel, like all of it boiled down to arguments that like I've done enough time. Right. And the and the problem is that when that's the argument that you're making, if your vehicle to make it is ineffective assistance of counsel or any of a wide range of things that people make arguments in the court, it was so consistently failing. And I and you know I'm not. But it was kind of irrelevant. It's kind of irrelevant who you are. I mean, I've been in the law, law library, but to, uh, answer me this: I mean, I've been in the law library trying to put those, uh, you know, trying to give guys like you know, put your character in there. I mean, lay lay a couple things out, and then a couple of jail jail, jail lawyers they're like, man, they don't give a fuck about that. They don't they don't care about who you are in the person. They don't care about stick to the law. Stick to the law. Just stick. To, they don't. Yeah, care that's about I mean, that's what I'm saying. Because right, I'm I'm reading between the lines though. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. I'm reading between the lines, and I'm saying. That this petition for ineffective assistance of counsel is clearly saying, like, I got sentenced to 50 years on a dope case, and that is insane. But because that's not a winning argument, it'll say all of these other things. And to your point, I think the next phase is really to find more robust ways to say, take a second look at who I am. Right. You know, when you when you sentenced me, you took a close look at who you thought I was in that moment. And mm-hmm. and and that plus the crime led to where I am now. Well, what I'm saying is, you know, we need more robust mechanisms to say, take a look at who I am now. And there have been people who, who've been making the case for this, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, even, you know, you know, the federal, we, we had yeah, a conversation about we this. Was and, on a, uh, yeah, we was on, he was on a, he was on a court, he was on a court with me, right? And he's been making he's that case. He's a federal case. judge now, right? Yeah, he's a federal um, third circuit court of appeals judge. Um, so he, he makes that case. I think, I, I, I'm not as a, I don't want to put words in his mouth, so I'm not as, I, but he, he does absolutely make the case for the need for more things like mercy and forgiveness um, in the system. And I, and I, and so I do think that, um, that he is somebody who has made that case. I think him, but also, you know, Senator Harris, when, when she on a presidential ca- campaign on the platform, she talked about um, second look legislation in the Senate has introduced, I think, some legislation to give people a second look in federal court. And so you 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 do have people that's getting out based on that second look in federal court. And some states have it. I mean, in Virginia, it just brought parole back for um, people who got incarcerated for crimes that they committed before they were juveniles. They still they still make them serve 20 years. So so my guys, you know, they all been locked up 22, 23, 24 years. And they, they did all of that time. And they had 50, 60 year sentence thinking that they would never go home. And, you know, what's fascinating is some of these dudes that I know, even though they, they really, you know, I mean, they hoped they would go home, but it wasn't anything in the cars that suggested that they would ever go home. But they still sought to live their lives in like an upright way, you know. And I think that this is something that we forget about is that as hard as yeah, prison is, you still got a lot of people that's like, I'm going to live my life in an upright way. And whether they don't do religion, whether they don't do sports, whether they like, you know, you go to the parole board and the parole board is like, but what have you done since you locked up? And you're like, right. man, I did the same thing your uncle did. I coached the, the, the neighborhood basketball team. I ain't, I ain't out here fighting and wilding out. I try to get yep. counsel when counsel is needed. You know, you right. ain't got to, like, go to college to be an upright citizen. But when you go no, to the yeah. parole board, the parole board acts like you got to be fucking Gandhi or something. <laughs> Yo, they they close in the yard. Yeah, this was an absolute pleasure. Uh, Reginald Dwayne Betts, uh, if anybody listening right now has not read, uh, you know, uh, you know, A Question of Freedom, uh, which is his memoir, uh, Felon, which is his uh, book of poems, or even Getting Out, the National uh, Magazine award-winning New York Times memoir piece, you should go do that. Uh, Dwayne, man, it's been, again, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I got to run. And uh, we'll kick it again. All right, man. Always a pleasure, man. Take it easy. This is a collect call from Sing Sing. It's produced by Jeff DeRay, Kirsten Woodward, and Steve Delamater, with help from Elena Garcia, Jack Greenbaum, and Devin Sherman. Special thanks to Norm Pattis, Peter Morris, Elizabeth Baquet, and Rachel Yanover. Follow John on Twitter at JohnJLennon1 and check out his work at johnjlennon.org. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Spotify, Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Podcasts.